for, for many of us, it's a lot more comfortable handling a knife in the operating room than it is standing up in front of you speaking. And uh, some of us are not great speakers, and we make a lot of notes, and we can't get to our notes because we forget where we are. So forgive me if that's true. And I hope I can tell you something that uh, is meaningful to you and has been very meaningful to us. Um, medicine is more than a gallbladder for a surgeon or a, removing a stomach or a hernia. It's, you know, in, in time, and I had to learn this, but it's relationships, it's people, it's people that stand up in your minds and memories. Uh, we were just standing out there talking, and uh, my wife always tells me when I get the opportunity of speaking at a church, she says, don't preach, tell the stories, tell the stories. And probably I'm a much better storyteller than I am a preacher, and I know I'm a much better storyteller than I am a theologian. Uh, as a missionary doctor, one of the things I think you'll find recurring time and time again in your life is the element of neglect. Something has to be neglected. And uh, it will either be your, you know, what you perceive as what's expected of you medically or what you're expected of you as, in my case, a father and a husband and, and a person trying to seek God's glory. And the main thing is that we just need to, to move on and see what God has for us. Now let me see if I can get my slides to move on. Hmm. You never, you never quite anticipate that. Aha. Uh-huh. Now the other thing you're learning right now is that we're better with a knife than we are with a computer, especially the older ones of us. So we we wound up having medical students stay in our home pretty much for 12 years or so. And one of the things that we'd often talk about, particularly as we were coming back late from the hospital together sometimes, is that medicine is a jealous mistress. I think that's the expression. They said, uh, medicine wants to woo you away into uh, uh, a level of care that's going to make you neglect the things that are most primary to you. And that being, for many of us, spouses and children and other responsibilities. And I don't, my personal feeling is that God will never ask you to compromise on, on things that, that are really important to him. So don't get, don't get led away. Uh, there's a conflict between having a healthy family and taking care of patients. You're going to come back and you're going to say, do I make the evening rounds as I'd like to? Or do I have devotions to my kids? Those are the types of conflicts that are going to be a little obvious at times. And your primary obligation, as I said, is to, to God. Now, I'm a person that, uh, when I don't know what to do, I sit down and doodle. And uh, doodling, I'm not sure, is a word that's translated into this century. But I just draw and I try and figure out what, what I think I should be doing. Now, this is drawn in the 1990s. And this was my plan to work with disabled kids. And how I would do it, not just locally, but beyond our uh, local hospital confines into the country, into the continent, and hopefully beyond. All those dreams didn't come true, but the vast majority did come true. So sometimes it's very important to to think about doodling, to think about arranging things. Um, Millie and I spent our first anniversary in uh, London on the way to Kenya for the first time. I was a medical student. She was a math teacher. 
I was the poor one, borrowed money from her. She paid my way through medical school. Some people accused me of waiting until she graduated so she had a degree and could pay my way. That really wasn't that true. I still loved her, but she, she did have far more money than I had for a long time. But uh, we met, we spent our first anniversary in London. I used to always tell the medi- other medical people, I said, I took my wife to London for her first anniversary. As it was, it was just the plane stop on the way to Africa. And I had a fellowship that took me on to Africa. So day after our first anniversary, we were in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, after those months in Kenya, my dream was to return to Africa, return to Kenya as a full-time, long-term uh, medical uh, surgeon. And... Uh, I finished medical school. I did a surgical residency. Millie and I went on to Democratic Republic of Congo and also to Kenya for five months. Came back and I had two years in the Air Force. During the time of the Air Force, uh, we went off to orientation school. Orientation school by African Mission took you to New York and you sit down and decide what you were, you were going to do and all. And part of what deciding what you were going to do is where you're going to go. And so I said, well, we think we would like to go back to Kajabi. They said, there's no need for a surgeon at Kajabi. I was absolutely crushed. That, that had been my dream for, for several years. And one of the older people said, uh, why don't you think about going to a closed country, an island in the Indian Ocean, an island that has been independent less than a year, and that after 150 years of colonial service, the the people there unilaterally pulled out, and when uh, the the other the colonial country left, they took 30 of their 36 doctors. So they had about a population of about 350, 400,000 people, and had six doctors. And so this country that was traditionally closed because of being a Muslim country, all of a sudden had room for any type of doctor, and I was one of those any types of doctors. And so we wound up going there eventually. Uh, this was after French study and tropical disease study. Found, found ourselves in this island of 250,000 people. Uh, I was in a hospital, the main government hospital in Capital City, 350 beds. I had 150 beds. The only other doctor in the hospital had 200 beds. I was the chief of anything that looked surgical. That meant general surgery, obstetrics and gynecology, and everything else, and there was no place to refer to people. Um, The people were, at at that time, in one of the newspapers that said it was the poorest country in the world, so not many of them had the assets to fly to another country, only the government leaders. And so I I tell people I learned to read a lot then because I had a lot of medical books, and if if I didn't do it, and this is not being arrogant, if I didn't do it, it didn't get done. And so we, we learn to do things. Now, let me, let me just advise you. Uh, this, is the, this is the hospital on the, the right. I didn't finish the whole world thing. This is the country we're in. Uh, it, was, it was a trial. We lasted a year and a half. One of our people became, what I would say, more aggressive spiritually, and the government eventually kicked us all out. And uh, I, I, I was very sad. I... As we got ready to leave, I went across the street to one of our old neighbors, and I said, uh, he was from Sudan. I said, Mohammed, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave you at this time. Uh, the government's asked us to leave. And he looked at me, and, and very sincerely, no, no, no smile on his face, he said, Dick, if you were a good Christian now, you wouldn't leave us. 
And those are the types of things that you put in your mind, and here that's been 1977. You never forget it. You never forget it. And uh, I've wondered about that since then. Uh, Being the chief of surgery was always one of my dreams. I had one other dream early on. I wanted to be the third baseman on the Los Angeles Angels baseball team. I I never realized that dream. But being the chief of surgery all of a sudden lost a lot of glamour when you were the only surgeon in the hospital. In many ways, those were the beginning. Uh, when we left the island, we went to Kajabi, which was where we spent the next 34 years. Uh, I call Kajabi our nest. Uh, Kajabi had uh, Rift Valley Academy, a school that kids could go kindergarten through 12th grade, about 50 yards behind our house. We had a home that was reasonably safe. It made it uh, convenient for me to go to other countries and to, be, to work in other services for a period of time, not worrying about my wife and kids. Now, that's not to say we never had any robberies or any problems, but we were relatively safe. When I came into the hospital, this is 1977, we had three doctors for about 80 beds. Uh, two surgeons, one generalist, uh, and we shared call. If, uh, if it was a diabetic ketoacidosis, unfortunately, the people sometimes got a surgeon who knew very little about what he was doing. After a few years... When I left in 2011, we had 280 beds and 35 to 40 doctors. And somewhere in between, we decided that that surgeons weren't very good at diabetes or hypertension or a variety of other things. And our other doctors didn't really like to operate. So we said, why don't we take surgical call? You take medical call. You'll be happier. I'll be happier. Uh, Everybody will feel more safe, too. So I went from being initially what I call a general surgeon. I was very comfortable taking out people's stomachs, fixing their hernias, doing mastectomies and a variety of other things, to, as time went on, being what I called a general, general surgeon. And that meant you could do C-sections, ectopic pregnancies, hysterectomies, uh, vesicovaginal fistulas, orthopedics, and everything else, obviously with a book in your hand. And there were literally times in which... Uh, for certain cases, the club feet, my, the nurses would still remember this, we'd take the book and put it beside the operating room table. And periodically we'd turn back to the nurse and say, turn the page, please. And it wasn't that you were trying to be intentionally neglectful. It just, if you didn't do some of the cases, nobody was going to do them. From Kajabi, 250 miles to the west, to Lake Victoria, there was one orthopedic surgeon. And so... And there were probably 8, eight to 20 million people. And I say that kind of loosely. But So we became a general surgeon, and then all of a sudden the other surgeon said, I don't like doing orthopedics. So I became the orthopedist for a while. And then in 1982, I made a, a vi- trip down to, let's see, a place called Caggiato Child Care Center. This picture dates from 1982. And the nurse, who was a very clever nurse, she was a Scottish nurse, she took us around on a tour of the facility, and this is the last room we went into. And you walked in, and the crutches were literally all over the floor, and if you look at the legs, all of them had braces, and these were all Maasai kids, nearly all of them with polio. And then uh, Georgie, the nurse, walked us outside, and she looked at us, and and she looked at me, and she said, Can you help us? Can you help us? Now, in case you don't know, surgeons are very proud people. 
Do we have any surgeons? How many surgeons? I know. Okay. How many of you are not proud? Go ahead, raise your hand. I just want to see. <laughs> but surgeons are very proud people. We don't want to say, I didn't want to tell her I'd never seen her an operation on a polio patient. I didn't want to tell her that I'd hardly ever seen a polio patient. But I said, we'll try. And that began, honestly, 1982, one of the most wonderful adventures of my lifetime. Now, in medical school, if you'd have said to me, you're going to take care of kids, and on your pediatric rotations, you're going to take care of kids, it was like taking being a veterinarian. They didn't talk to you, they wet on you, and things like that. And, <laughs> and I found that eventually, uh, this, this was my heart. This, uh, the kids and, and their parents were my heart. So after I came out of there, we started doing disabled kids, and eventually it was mostly polio and club, and club feet, and a few other things, but uh, that was that was a realm that led to more neglect. Remember, we started the, the talk with a little thing about neglect. If I took care of the disabled kids, and the estimate is that there's three to ten percent of the population is disabled. Uh, what does that mean for Africa? If we say, just let's just round it off to 5%. If 5% of 1 billion people are disabled, that's 50 million people. And so as we, we embarked upon this, we emb- I embarked on it absolutely innocently, and maybe you want to use the word ignorantly. And that, was, that became uh, a passion for me. Now, the hospital didn't know what to do with this. There were still only two surgeons. And so certain edicts came out of our board of governors. One said... No doctor can do over 10% subspecialty. Well, I was the only one doing any subspecialty, so that was... And my, my practice had already gone to 30 to 40% specialty. Next thing they said is, we're a general hospital, and our hospital are not going to grow a number of beds. That didn't make any sense to me. And the third thing they finally said is that, as long as you do 50% of what we call general surgery, you can do anything else with your extra time. And so... There was a realm of neglect, neglecting the other doctors in which all of us had to pick up a little extra load. But what, was, what were you going to neglect? About that time, I delivered a missionary wife. You see, I was still doing odd and in things. I should, shouldn't have been delivering babies, but there were only three of us still. And I said after we delivered her, I said, Jan Marv, you're, you're just at the coast. You're on an island on the north of Kenya. Uh, do you think they could ever use a visiting surgeon periodically? And uh, he turned back to me and says, well, we'd like to have a surgeon, but we'd prefer a dentist. Now, that didn't build my ego. That was a little humbling. (laughs) So I began going down there. These were all all Muslim people. Went down there for 15 years, digging and watering, digging and watering, and relationships and building and loving and caring. And uh, did we see a lot of fruit? No. But there's still people that are working amongst those people. And right on the, island, on the coast, the very first medical visit I went down there, they had to call in a translator. And I said, why do you need a translator? And they said, oh, this lady, she's from a tribe on the coast. She only speaks Boni, B-O-N-I. And when he said, she, they said that, my, we had what we traditionally called a liver shiver. And that's where you just kind of feel a little vibration because there was no known Christians amongst the bony. And uh, that became a passion too. So 
this girl needed a brace. We took her back a brace. Uh, we, uh, she, she did well. She took us back into the bush looking for other bony with polio or club feet or things like that. And so here was an added burden. Um, our staffing of doctors became better. I became less guilty in, in leaving. And we began doing mobile clinics to 15 locations around Kenya. Uh, we didn't own any of the clinics. We, we worked with people that cooperated with us. We worked with the Anglicans. We worked with the Catholics. We worked with uh, the Association of Physically Disabled Kenya. We worked with anybody that was, that was working with disabled kids. And they would bring them in. We'd see them locally for preoperative care, for postoperative care. And then we'd decide, you know, who we could take care of. And these people were desperately poor. Most of the parents had taken their children already to the local clinic, to the local hospital, to the provincial hospital, and maybe to the central hospital in town, the big one, and uh, been told that there was nothing to do for them. And so we began. Um, the, the work grew. Uh, patients became coming from, from everywhere. And uh, uh, we finally wound up with a position in which we had so many patients, we said uh, we could still say we've never turned away a patient because that needed an operation because of lack of money. Now, that made a lot of difference because as we continued to do this, one of, the, one of our supporters, a group called Sir Christophe of Blended Mission, halfway through the year came back and said, we're, we're really having financial problems. We won't be able to, to support patients for the last half of the year. And I, I'm not sure whether I ever said it to them, but I mentally thought it. I said, you can't do that to me. I mean, we've got all these people scheduled for operations. And I went back and I wrote to one of our churches in Omaha and I said, uh, and I, I didn't write asking for anything. I said, this is what's happened. That Sunday they picked, took up an offering and they, they collected, which doesn't sound like a lot in here, but it was a lot there, $22,000. Now this was at a time that we could do an average of 2.4 operations on a polio patient. We could make them a brace. We could do their lab work. We could uh, do any x-rays. And the end, end of the week, after five or six days in the hospital, their bill was $85. So $22,000 was a lot of, lot of money for us. And so that was where we, we moved. So general surgery, general, general surgery, disabled kids, Muslims on the coast, and unreached people groups all tumbled together to, to encourage neglect. And uh, that, was, that was a hard thing. Add to that a famine in the northern frontier district of Kenya and uh, a need there where we went, looked at these kids. There were thousands of Somalis that had come across the border, first because of fighting, but secondly because of famine. And the whole northern frontier was famine-wise. And we went back and we looked, is, is there a way that we can help these types of people? Refugee camps and various other things added in. Uh, in 1992, there's a man speaking down there as we speak here called David Stevens. Any of you know David Stevens? You probably know who he is. David, uh, uh, Millie and I had gone to the coast right after we'd gone to the northern frontier and seen all this famine. And he said, uh, would you be willing to be our medical director in Mogadishu, Somalia? And I said to David, I said, man, I'd have to ask our hospital director. He says, I've already done that. We'll have you covered. And I said, well, maybe I should talk to my wife and kids. 
said, I'll call you back tonight. And so I, I went back to the room, told Millie, I said, they'd like me to do this and probably for three to six months. And I said, uh, do you think it would be okay if I were to do this? She said, fine. Now, we only had at that time, we have seven kids. See, seven, that's seven. Uh, seven kids. And we only had uh, essentially three at home. We had our, our newest was an adopted boy. He was six months old now, Kenyan boy. And uh, took, uh, we, we went out by the pool. We were at the coast on vacation. And I said, uh, I've been offered this opportunity by, to our twins. They were 15. I said, to go to Mogadishu and help. My, my boy, John, he looked up at me and said, Dad, you have to go. This is exactly what we've been praying for. And I don't know if you're, if you're a father, that really touches your heart that your kids are, are interested in seeing God glorified to the gifts that he's given us. The uh, work with the disabled at Kajabi continued to grow. Others came to join, and there's a man downstairs that is functioning as an usher and a director. He's in disguise. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Joe's about 84 years old now. He came out for about 15 years and taught me the gifts of working with polio patients and of club feet and things like that. He's an undercover agent in this, hospital, in this <laughs> church. And, uh, but there were various people that came out and would teach us something more. Uh, Dick Tapese came out and taught us how to do cleft lips. Uh, Joe, Joe Stiles came out and showed us how to do orthopedic things. A guy named Peter Anderson came out and showed us how to do club feet. And a whole variety of other people would teach you. Stan Topple and things like that. And they would add to your repertoire of what you could do. Um, between 1984 and 2011, various groups helped with the expenses. And as I said, uh, we never went out. I, I, I nearly never, unless somebody said to me, I've never asked people for money. I've never asked them to help us take care of disabled kids. But, they, but it came. When they were aware of what we're doing and the outcomes, uh, this came. Uh, back in the 1980s, one time, we had a, a radio call came from up north, and two of the nurses said, we have this child with hydrocephalus. Could you put on a shunt? Now, I'm going to assume you know what a shunt, a tube that runs from the head down into the abdomen to be an artificial conduit to get pressure off the brain. And so there were only two surgeons at the time this, this request came, and I went to the other surgeon. I said, Bob, would you, uh, would you be able to put on a shunt? And between the two of us, we decided we'd not only never put one in, we'd never seen one put in. Now, about that time, and this is long before email, I got a letter that's a letter that comes in the post office box, and uh, it had a stamp on it and things like that. <clears throat> you remember, we're talking to a new generation of people, and in that letter was it said, I'm a Chinese neurosurgeon working in Los Angeles. I'm coming to Africa on a safari. Could I have a tour of your hospital? <laughs> now, my brother lives in the Los Angeles area, so I phoned my brother. Now, this is crank phones. That's the... <laughs> You get hung up on, things like this. But anyhow, I wrote, called my brother and I said, Jack, would you call this guy and just tell him, we'd love to give you a tour of the hospital. How'd you like to put in a shunt? <laughs> and so a few weeks, a couple of weeks later, he showed up, came with a shunt. We took him straight to the operating room. He put in that shunt. Uh, he left us one extra shunt, and that was the only shunt we ever saw put in by a professional for 15 years. 
And during those 15 years, we probably put in two to three to 500 shunts. And what, what I'm basically telling in that story is that uh, there, it's not that you choose to do this, but when there's nobody else around, sometimes you do it anyhow. Uh, in 1998, several years later, a man by the name of Dr. Ben Worf. Ben was uh, a neurosurgeon, a pediatric neurosurgeon of all things. He looked up on the web. He's looking for a, a mission where he might serve with, could help with. And he found an uh, African mission. It's an A. It begins with an A, so it's early on in the web. He wrote to African mission. They referred him to another man at this conference, Phil Fisher. Phil Fisher was at Mayo Clinic. He sent the letter on to me, and Ben Warf wound up coming out for about three weeks with his daughter. He taught me tons of things about putting in shunts, closing backs for spina bifida. And in the process, somewhere in there, Ben mentioned the name Leland Albright. He says he's got a good book on pediatric neurosurgery. So I thought, well, maybe I ought to get that book. So I wrote my son. My son's an orthopedic surgeon. I said, Rick, could you see about getting this book for me? And he, he looked around, he couldn't find the book. I don't know why to this day, but thank God he couldn't find the book. Because then I got the address of Leland Albright, and I, I wrote him an email, and I said, uh, can you tell me where I can buy your book? And he wrote back and he said, why don't you tell me what you're doing? So I told him what I was doing, and he said, uh, and then, I, then he, so to speak, invited himself to come out and work with us a little bit. So he came out for two or three weeks, and brought me a book, a free book, a free book. Now, I don't get many deliveries like that. And that, that pardon? No, he didn't sign it. <laughs> I have my name in the front. I don't want to give him back to Leland Albright. He's got plenty of them. But anyhow, uh, I got this book, and uh, that relation began. And for the next uh, about 11 years, Leland would come out, usually once a year for two to three weeks. And then in 2011, he came out and replaced me. He was a full-time pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Now, I'm behind on my slides a bit. This is his book. You see his name? He's one of the editors. Who'd ever thought I'd have got an editor to come? He's the one that says that we probably do more spina bifida than any other hospital in the world. Uh, this is what happened to us as we embarked upon that ignorantly uh, doing shunts, VP shunts and related procedures. That's the red line there. Uh, we wound up towards the end of 2011 doing 931 shunts per year. And in 2011, about 390 spina bifida cases per year. Uh, <clears throat> this turns out to be about this many shunts per year on an average, with most of them occurring in the end. Uh, my last major adventure began in 2006. Uh, three of us somewhat foolishly said, let's, uh, let's go to a new country and see if we can help a little bit. And this new country was a closed country, and we flew up on an airline that I, we probably should have never been on, and we landed in a city, and we took a, a bus across uh, to the capital, and the next day down to this rural town that had the only medical school in the country that was isolated. And our, our concept when we got there is, we're, you know, we'd come in here quietly, what I would say practically, secretively. I wonder if we're going to have any patients or anything to do. So we wound up there, and we walked into this ward. The ward was, 
about the size of this room, not the same dimensions, but about 80, 90 feet long and 30 feet wide, absolutely packed with patients. And we thought, now how do these people all know to come here? And we soon learned that our secretive mission had been announced over the BBC, the British Broadcasting, <laughs> and that people had come not only from all over that country, but from four regions around that country. Did they come because we were an absolute unknown to them? But these were anxious, in my case, these were anxious parents who had no other options. There was no neurosurgeon in the country. There was no plastic surgeon. There was no pediatric surgeon. And I used to say kind of a half of an orthopedist because he was mostly doing administration. And so they came to unknown people, and many of them said kind of uh, indirectly, uh, and I will go back one. Uh, They said it indirectly, uh, can you help my child? Do you have anything you can offer my child? And we began, and that was 2006, that's eight years ago. Uh, I'm going to read to you a little bit. My my feeling is we should be Jesus in the flesh. Uh, Now you will need to ponder what you are going to neglect. Now for those of you in that... she didn't know it yet, but she's probably going to be a pre-med patient or a person too. Met pre-meds today. There, there are tremendous opportunities that God puts before us in the world today. And that if we, if we honor those opportunities, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our ignorance, in spite of needing a book sitting beside the table, if we honor him, he will honor us. Now, something that wasn't going to be in this talk, say, what about the spiritual outcome of this? When we got our team together in 2004, 2005, and we hired a chaplain, a 55-year-old widow with five kids, five grown kids pretty much. And she came back and she said to us, Mercy said, "Uh, could could we train some disciplers? And I said, Mercy, what's a discipler? She says, we'd like to have them to follow up our our patients and to follow up our new believers. And so I said, that that sounds like a great plan. And so we began training disciples. Mercy began training disciples. We now have over 300 disciples scattered all over the country. And nearly every year we have between four and 7,000 people come to the Lord through that team. Now, I don't know how many people this church has come to the Lord, but I don't think they have four to 7,000 a year. We, we once added up our spiritual budget. It costs us $3.84 per person that becomes a Christian. $3.84. And all this to say is that whatever, you know, whether you're going to be a uh, family practitioner, a physical therapist, physio- what is it in this country? Physical therapist, British or physical therapist, occupational therapist, whatever you're going to be, if you, if you put your hands in God's hands, he will take you and mold you and help you neglect certain things and put you in a place that he wants you and bear fruit through you. If you, for some reason, wind up in a, in a, in a closed country, your fruit's not going to be very much. But... For every precious fruit that comes, you'll praise God. When, when my two friends and I went into that closed country, 
we would teach from eight in the, or we would operate from eight in the morning to five at night. From 5:30, we would start teaching the medical students all six classes all together: girls on the right, men on the left, and we we teach them till about 9:30 at night. And uh, a lot of those young people who were young people then are now the doctors. People say, "What well, do you do all the shunts in that country? I don't do hardly any of those shunts. D and S do all my shunts practically. Sometimes I walk in the room and I say, what are you planning to do on this shunt or this burn contracture or what flap you want to do or this club foot? And they tell me and I say, I'll be across the hall drinking coffee if you need me. And they know that it's not, I want to neglect them. But they know that what I'm saying is, I trust you. Now, these were medical students when we first came. Now, if if you say, could you do that with every medical student? No. But these are two people that had an interest in surgery, could handle tissues well, and were conscientious about not only the care in the operating room, but the follow-up. Now, a few statistics. Did you know that there are 2 billion people, according to WHO, without access to surgical care? That's in the world. 2 billion how many zeros is that? Anyhow, a lot of zeros. Did you know that the New York Times, not the New England Journal of Medicine, but the New York Times says that there's 56 million people in sub-Saharan Africa that need surgery today? That's a quote. And did you know that between, Ben Worf said initially 45,000 new cases of hydrocephalus in sub-Saharan Africa every year, every year, uh, when I challenged him in Boston, I said, well, somebody else says 192,000. He said it could be 250 to 500,000 cases of new cases of hydrocephalus in sub-Saharan Africa every year. Did you, and this is the number. Do you know that if we were to lead 4,000 people to the Lord and we were to go to the 40 to 45 countries that have essentially nothing for disabled kids, that... 40 countries times 4,000 is 160,000. Do you realize that if you got the right team, you could see over a million people come to the Lord in seven years? Now, if you were on the upper end and had 7,000 per year, you could see a million in four years. Even Billy Graham doesn't expect to see that many people, probably. I guess he's too old now, but anyhow. There are millions, no billions, that don't know our Savior, and medicine's a tool. And you just have to choose who you're going to neglect. And I just say that uh, working with disabled kids was the greatest adventure of my life. Thank you. Now, do you have questions that we could try and answer? You guys didn't have enough coffee today. Yes? I'm curious about your wife and kids. When you talk about neglect, so there's got to be that juxtaposition, too, of family. Uh, that's a, that's a whole lecture, but let me give you the brief summarized thing. We had seven kids. Uh, our oldest is uh, on that island in the Indian Ocean now. Uh, when they're home from school, he has four boys, aged from 13 down to about eight. Um, my second one is an orthopedic surgeon, a spine surgeon. He has four kids. Third one... Um, is a nurse married to a person working with Samaritan's Purse. They have two kids. He travels. He's in the Philippines right now. 
Uh, fourth is uh, just finished seminary at D Dallas Seminary. He and his wife want to go to greater European mission to Austria and, and do church planning. Fifth, uh, a young lady who was stubborn like me, a lot like her dad. Uh, she went to college and got a degree in English and decided she couldn't support herself with English, so she went back and did nursing. And uh, for one reason or the other, she married and has four kids now. She's a full-time mom. And then we have a 22-year-old waiting to go into the Army. Uh, he'd like to go. He just finished college in, May, in June. And then we have a 19-year-old that's in community college now. My 19-year-old had hydrocephalus, and uh, he has a shunt-in. Uh, a great addition to our family. Great addition when you go and make rounds. When I used to go and make rounds in the ward, and all these mothers didn't know what was going to happen with their child with their big head. And I'd take Philip in with me on a Saturday or a Sunday, and I'd say, he has a shunt. And uh, they'd watch him walk and talk and jump and things like that. And then they'd want to feel his shunt, and they'd come over and feel his shunt. Uh, <clears throat> my wife prays for me. She's the only reason I can go to that closed country and, and feel comfortable in many ways. Um, when, when we met, we met at InterVarsity's missionary camp. Uh, she wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to go someplace in the world. Then I decided I wanted to go someplace in the world with, my, with this girl I wanted to marry. So we were married the next summer, about a year after we met. And uh, a year later, we were in Africa, just on a short-term thing, but for three months. Um, uh, the kids, uh, we had, we, we had every, we, when you have seven kids, in case you ever wonder, you ought to have seven kids, because that means one for every day of the week. When you, when you have five, five kids, you can always fudge and say there's mom and dad too, but they get choices of what type of prayers you're going to do at the end of devotions. And uh, they invented prayers. We had pop-up prayers. When you popped up prayers, you had to stand up when you were going to pray, and you sat down after you prayed. Uh, we had a whole lot of... We had fishermen prayers where you prayed for the unsaved. We had a whole lot of different things. But our kids were part of our ministry. And I, I think I say that in our home, with our medical student, with our summer volunteers, they were part of it. And that was, that was very valuable. You can ask me later. You can ask my wife. She's over watching Dave Stevens. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, sir. When you faced a situation of expanding opportunities, such as with the polio children or others where there's not enough of you to go around, can you describe a little bit the discernment process and how you, how you discern God's will and leading and what to take on? There was the doodling, and there was the positives and the negatives of certain opportunities. There was talking to my wife and see what you know what she thought. It was talking with my kids at time. When John came out, you know, as I say, we're at the coast. It was the very first time we stayed in a hotel at the coast. It was the first time we had access to a phone. It was this bump before cell phones. And when afterwards we went out by the pool and he said, "Dad, you gotta go." That was that was part of the discernment, and that was part of the liberty of going. Were we ever in danger? I don't know that. I think we were, but we were too ignorant to know at times. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, lots of plans. Yes, sir? Did you, how early and did you take your children with you in your, when you did medicine? Like, were they, were they at your side, like, at an early age? Did you use them? Well, my, my daughter Bethany, uh, when we were on the island, uh, the workday ran from 7 in the morning to 1 in the afternoon, and then all the national staff except those on call left. Uh, 
And so in the afternoon, I'd go home, and I'd have a late lunch, and then anything they called with, I'd ask the kids, would they like to go with me? Usually one at a time. And Bethany at two would go down. Rick at uh, five or six would go down with me. And if we wound up down there, most of the times it was falling out of a mango tree and breaking your arm. So we would give them a little ketamine or epintol. Epintol was one we used the most. I'd put them to sleep for about two minutes, straighten the arm. We didn't have enough x-ray film to take all x-rays in all of them, I'm sorry to say. And we'd put a cast on, and my two-year-old daughter would come over and mold the cast with me. Uh, if it turned out that while we were there, we had uh, a C-section or uh, a fracture or things like that, I'd take my two-year-old daughter, set her on a stool, put a mask on her and a hat on her head, and she'd sit there for two hours watching the operation. Now, as they got older, initially the school would allow me to take my boys out of primary school and take them north with me on surgical trips. Then things started shifting. In 1993, my daughter came back. She'd done one year of nursing school. This is Bethany again. And we were sitting and listening to the radio. And coming right out of Kigali was the massacre, was the genocide. And Bethany said to me, Dad, we ought to go over there and see if we can help. And I I had a few qualms, honestly. Uh, You could hear the gunfire in the background as as you listened to the radio program. So a few weeks later, we went over to Samaritan's Purse. We wound up in an IDP or an internally displaced people's camp with over 100,000 people, and my one-year nursing school daughter became the head of the immunization program. And she stayed on through the summer. She had a number of babies die in her tent. And uh, uh, would I do that over again emotionally? I would in a minute for them. Uh, That same daughter... Uh, later wound up in Sudan with her husband uh, during the bombings, during a, a lot of other things. But uh, our, kids, our kids became a part of the ministry too. My one son who's the orthopedist goes with me to that closed country usually once or twice a year. Uh, it was, you know, bring your kids in. Your kids can't afford not to be a part of your team. If they don't believe in you, nobody else would. I say the only people that really know you in life are your kids because they live right in the home. They know who you really are in your bad moments. Other questions? I'm not sure where the time is. Yes? So with all these surgeries that you were doing, did you guys have I would kind of say early on we kind of sort of did, kind of sort of. I mean that meant a lot of IV ketamine, putting in a spinal before you did the C-section. We we ran by the skin of our teeth at times. Later on, right now in that same hospital, we have a guy named Mark Newton. Mark is a pediatric anesthesiologist training nurse anesthetists. Now honestly, some of the nurse anesthetists, Mary, National, Kenyon, Kikuyu, I'd take her to do my anesthesia any day over most of the people in the United States. She is good, and many of the others are good, too. Uh, we're multiplying that. We have two people training in that closed country I go to. Mark now has southern Sudanese coming out to be trained in anesthesia. But that's an absolute need. Talked to a lady yesterday who works in a closed country in West Africa. Her, she's a surgeon. Her big need is an anesthesia person. And you can get by. I put shunts in without intubating them. I put shunts in with a little bit of intermittent ketamine. Um, 
nasal oxygen, things like that. Uh, I, it's a little harder to do it with spina bifida, but you can do it like that too. Um, cut some corners. Be willing to not be... There's a word called state-of-the-art. Most of Africa is not ready for state-of-the-art. I, I hate to say that. If you're African, I don't know... I don't know if you're African or not African. That's not to, to run down your countries because I, that that's, was my home for 35 years. But it's just to say we, we can't afford the specialization in Africa. If you've got 56 million people in sub-Saharan Africa, can you imagine training everybody to be a full surgeon, four years of college, four years of medical school, five years of residency, and a massive debt? We need, and I'll talk to it a little bit tonight about the Band-Aid rehab surgeon. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. When you were up against a case that you hadn't done before, or that you knew that if it was just you, the patient, and this problem, and it was only you, what tools did you use, aside from prayer and the books that you had, to make that final decision to actually go forward and do an operation you had only done a couple of times and you'd only read about? If there's anybody there, I would ask for their feeling. If, if it was not, if it was urgent, sometimes you may, the decision maker was the knife. I mean, I don't mean that to sound too casual. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's like, when, when I first went out, uh, I was a medical student. The first Sunday I was there, we had a ruptured uterus. Didn't know it for sure. I'd never seen one before. But I, I went to the only other doctor in the station. The main doctor was on safari. He was up, up, up in Northern Frontier doing medical trips. The other lady had, I think, four little kids at that time. She came into the hospital once or twice a week to make rounds. I said, Ellen, we have a patient I think has a ruptured uterus. Can you come down and do that? She said, I've only seen one. And so between the two of us, we got the lady through and she survived. Um, sometimes when you take, make that midline incision or transverse, whatever it is, you don't know what you're going in for. And I've had people bleed to death on the table. But they'd have bled to death if I hadn't made that incision. So it's, it, sometimes you want to make a decision what you don't want to do rather than what you want to do. Because sometimes what you want to do may, may be the life-saving thing that, that spares their life. I don't think I've answered your question because I haven't answered that question in my own mind fully. Uh, it's a great life. Uh, many of you are here like my wife and I were in a setting like this 50 years ago. We have our 50th anniversary next year. 50, 50 years ago, we were at InterVarsity's Urbana Conference looking for God, where God would have us in the world and what partner to partner with. I'm not talking about a wife. I'm talking about a team to work with. Maybe some of you are looking for wives too. But anyhow, we won't get to that. But uh, it's, a, it's a great adventure. I, I would say we have a number of younger people here. One of the things I tell people every time I speak to a group that age is don't marry the wrong partner. If your partner does not have the same call of God upon his life, don't compromise. Don't compromise. God has something better for you. Uh, anyhow, thank you for being here. God bless you. <laughs>